Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hi. This is Anthony. You may remember me because I wrote a couple books with Aaron about Game of Thrones. You're listening to an experimental 10-episode season that we're calling Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. This is book-centric. We're going to be focused mostly on A Game of Thrones, Martin's first novel in the Ice and Fire series. Each week I'm going to talk with someone who's read this book very closely. It's probably a university professor who may have taught a class on Game of Thrones Now, you could do one of two things with this. You could read along with us. We'll be covering the first nine chapters. Or you could use this podcast like Cliff's Notes and experience the book without actually reading the book. If you're a show-only person, I will be having a stand-up comic friend of mine, Steve Osborne, come on every episode as he does a first watch of the HBO adaptation. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope you do too. Now let's talk about the thing that you're probably concerned about, and believe me, I know, I'd be concerned about it too if I was in your shoes. This is not an Aaron and Jim joint, which means that you're not going to hear those familiar voices every week. The unfortunate fact of the matter is, and brace yourself for it, is that Aaron, as our Game of Thrones father, said that he was going to get a pack of cigarettes and he just never came back, and Jim is snorting Westworld and freebasing the expanse. He's just not going to be the mother that we always had hoped he was going to be. So you're stuck with me. And buddy, I'm never going to be your mom or your dad, but I could be your friend. So why don't you give this 10-episode series a chance? I'm Anthony, and this is Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bukaloo. My guest this week, in fact, my first guest, I'm really excited to have her, is Stephanie Barbe-Hammer. Stephanie is a novelist and a professor of English literature and a big fan of A Game of Thrones. Her most recent book is called The Puppet Turners of Narrow Interior. This book is great. This book is bizarre. It's funny. Stephanie focuses a lot on how to bring magical elements into a realist landscape. So she's the perfect person to talk about the prologue to A Game of Thrones. After my full interview with Stephanie, we'll get a brief excerpt of my interview with Dr. Lisa Woolfork. And we'll also be checking in with comic Steve Osborne before he's done any viewing of any episode. A brief warning. Throughout this entire series, we will welcome and relish in spoilers. Without further ado, here is Stephanie Barbahammer. Stephanie, welcome. I am so happy to have you on. I am just thrilled to be on your podcast, Anthony. Thank you so much for inviting me. I know that we're supposed to be talking about Game of Thrones, but I want you to know that I just finished Puppet Turners last night. On top of that, I started reading a little of... Oh, gosh. What's the title of your guidebook's name again? Delicious Strangeness. 
Delicious strangeness. I, yes. I, delicious is the right word. I, so I just started reading that last night too. Oh, that's um, wonderful. So I so I am talking to the right person relative to imagination. Yeah, and certainly Game of Thrones. I mean, speaking of delicious strangeness, mm-hmm. that's a deliciously strange set of books <laughs> for sure. They really are devoursome, speaking of delicious. Um, rereading the first one though, I've been paging through the the first book it's not it's not exactly an easy read they're fairly dense books actually yes you know sometimes here's how i like to describe game of thrones to people who haven't read it so lord of the rings almost builds an entire ecosystem and then like gets a microscope on one of the leaves of the oak tree yeah right so the the dna of the entire uh system can be seen in that one little oak leaf or whatever Yeah, absolutely. Whereas I feel like Martin, what Martin's doing is he's building an ecosystem one branch at a time and he's showing us, okay, here's what's happening over here and here's what's happening on this leaf and then that root. And then somehow we're going to figure out how they all relate. But he loves different branches and sometimes he maybe invents too many branches. And I think that that can be a problem if you ever try to finish the narrative. Right. Yeah. In that sense, he's really, I mean, I'm going to talk about a very, very different writer, but in that sense, he's a bit like Victor Hugo, who creates these huge, huge narratives, but doesn't show us everything at once. And apparently... Uh, Victor Hugo, for w- because it was so complicated, particularly I'm thinking about Les Miserables, mm-hmm. that he actually forgot certain things, and right. there are some inconsistencies in the book. Of course, George Martin's got the you know the benefit of fandom, who can help him remember who's doing what to whom and where each person is in the world. Right. So Victor Hugo didn't have the benefit of like a giant hive mind reminding. Right. He him. would have loved it too. It would have been great for him. <laughs> so Stephanie, today we're talking about the prologue, right? Of the first book in the series, simply titled Prologue. And as Martin will often do at the beginning of these books, we'll see through the eyes of a character that we either don't know or we'll never see again, or some character that is maybe ancillary to the overall narrative. Yeah. Yeah, he loves to do that. He does something that's actually very typical of what procedurals and other kinds of murder mysteries do, is we see the point of view often of the quote-unquote murder victim. Ah. And that, of course, happens here in this first prologue. That's, you know what? I've ne- I never made that connection, and it totally makes sense because that's what this book is. It's a murder mystery. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a lot of other things, too, but it is a murder mystery. Yeah, it and, absolutely is. And Ned yeah. Stark is the detective, and of course, you know, we, we don't necessarily see the murder. If, if we're going to totally go that direction, we would want to find out how John Arryn died or something like that. Right. Um, right. But no, but I, I, I mean, clearly this, this book has a view to more than just what's in these pages. Yes, yes. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give a brief synopsis of the prologue, and then we can fill in any gaps that I missed in our conversation. Okay, Okay, so we are introduced to Martin's world, eight or nine days ride beyond the wall, through the eyes of Will. 
and Will is a member of the Night's Watch, and he's on a ranging. Two other characters, Garrod and Sir Waymore Royce. And there's been some to-do. There's been some happening. The report back to Waymore is that the wildlings are dead and their corpses are at the encampment and they should really start heading back because it's going to get cold and it'll probably be colder than this lordling has ever experienced in his life. And Waymar Royce is putting on a little bit of either courage or false courage. We can talk about that. And he says, no, I'm going to look for it. I'm going to see it with my own eyes. Take me there. I, I have no time for cowardice. So they go to this encampment and they find that the wildlings are gone and this freaks out Will and he tries to hide under a bush and Sir Roy says, nope, no cowardice around me, please. And he sends him up a tree to scout the area. And as soon as that happens, poor Lordling Royce meets himself an other and the other quickly kills him. And that's clearly the others are are something other than human or something more than human. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's the, you know what a be- what a beginning. My goodness, yeah. this introduction of these really frightening, monstrous characters who were at the same time quite beautiful. They're quite beautifully described. Yeah. And here we go. We're off and running, trying to figure out what's going on in this world. Right. Okay. Let me ask you this question. So yes. you've, you've done a lot of work with short stories, right? Mm-hmm. In a sense, because these characters have a very limited uh, run, <laughs> do, do you think that this prologue kind of functions as a short story in the way that it's enclosed? You see the whole world enclosed in one tiny narrative? That's a wonderful question, and I'm so grateful for this conversation because that's, that's something that has never, never occurred to me. I'm actually looking at it right now, looking at the ending right now. You know, it absolutely works as a short story. Uh, my writing teachers all talk about how the end ought to tie something up, but uh-huh. it also should leave things open, and the ending of the prologue does that. We have this sense of who are these others, the blue eye, but we return to the idea of coldness, which is my writing teachers have told me you want to kind of bring things a little bit full circle. Mm -hmm. And that prologue does that. Absolutely. So I'm just going to read the last paragraph real quick here. The right eye was open. The pupil burned blue. It saw. The broken sword fell from the nerveless fingers. Will closed his eyes to pray. Long, elegant hands brushed his cheek and then tightened around his throat. They were gloved in the finest moleskin and sticky with blood, yet the touch was icy cold. Ah! Wow. (laughs) That's some good writing. I love it. I love it. Well, okay. Now that, now, okay. I'm so glad you said that. All right. So it is good writing, but. It's also representative of someone who isn't George R.R. R. Martin quite yet. You Interesting. Know, in, in other words, I guess what I mean is George R.R. R. Martin had written other things and he had written for television and I think he had some relationship to The Twilight Zone and whatnot. So he's certainly a talented author, but he's not the person he is now. Right. This is him in the, I don't know, early 90s or late 80s or something like that. Yeah, I think you're right. And 
he, you know, someone that might still benefit from a, a writing class. And I'm <laughs> curious if yeah. one of your students handed this in as a short story, what kind of comments might you give to this Thanks. author? Yeah, it's, I just looked at, it's 1996. Um, okay, sure. When the, when the book comes out. Um, I don't know as I would have much in the way to say about the prologue, which I think we were talking about it as a short story. I think it functions very well. It's very tight. It's very lyrical. It's also very grounded. One of the things I really appreciate about being able to revisit the, the prologue is it gave me the opportunity to appreciate how much we were talking about embodiment earlier, right? Mm -hmm. How embodied we get in the world thanks to Will in particular climbing up that tree. That moment is so important because it really, we can really feel ourselves on that tree with him. Um, the rest of the book, I've been paging through it, kind of reminding myself of the structure. There's a lot of description, a lot, a lot, a lot. And if, if, if this, you know, if young George were in my class, <laughs> All right. I would say, you know what, what do we absolutely need to see, hear, smell? Don't tell us everything in every <laughs> chapter about where we are because it does drag the it again this is victor hugo land because victor hugo did that but this was the 19th century and right. there were no movies and photography was just getting going um don't tell us everything yeah so maybe he doesn't have necessarily the same level of description as like someone like tolkien but right. pretty getting pretty close, right? Yeah. And of course, remember, as I'm sure you do, Tolkien was a professor. Right. And C.S. Lewis read the Tolkien books and went, oh, my God. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Lewis's note to Tolkien would be similar to your note to Mr. Martin, right? Yes, I think so. So, this is the guest choice portion of the podcast. Yay. Um, do you want to choose a character, a plot point, a theme, or do you want to climb the ladder of chaos? Ah, oh, the ladder of chaos. Oh, well, I'm going to pick a theme which is a bit chaotic. Okay. Um, and this is actually a question that I have for you in particular, Anthony, because you work so much on questions of, of religiosity and particularly yeah. your interest in Christianity. Mm -hmm. I'm struck by the incredibly dark world that we glimpse in the prologue. This is a dark, dangerous, cold world. Yes. And yet there is a person in the, in the prologue, it's the person who we actually are most focused on, who is a person of faith. Right. It's a prayer, right? And, and he climbs up that tree mm -hmm. and prays to the gods of the wood and it's i was struck by rereading this i thought gosh here it is here are mm -hmm. the old gods there's such an important idea in the entire series and here they are just nestled into that moment it's really wonderful writing so there he is he says his prayer he prays at the end but there is no sense in that prologue or arguably in much of the book of any kind of beneficent anybody no, in terms of the spiritual right. world. 
And I that's wanna, right. And what are I your thoughts we, about that? We just see, like so many other things in the book, we see his system of worship. We see like a wink and a nod to it. We don't really see it explained at this point yet. It's simply assumed, no, in it, other words. Right? Right. Here's something interesting, which I, I didn't think about this before, so I'm just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. If he is praying to the old gods, which it seems like he is, he's praying to the tree gods. Right. And he ought to be closer to those tree gods in the forest up a tree. Absolutely. Yet there's no help in sight. No, there's nothing. (laughs) And it's almost like several characters we meet throughout the book will reiterate this problem. That you may believe in the tree gods, but it's very questionable about whether they ever will intervene. Mm-hmm. And exactly. it's very questionable whether or not we ever see any sort of God uh, intervene, or if we, we just have a world of magic and some people interpret the magic as deity, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, so the up a tree metaphor is great. The up a tree metaphor, because it's almost like he's almost climbed into the arms of a God that will not help him. Right, exactly. That's well put. I love that. I mean, I, lo- I love that you brought that up. So the theme, uh, the theme, we'll, we'll eventually learn that, you know, you actually will go into a God's wood and you'll be among yeah. the trees to worship. And we're not saying necessarily that he's climbed a weirwood tree or anything like that. But trees are important in this narrative. Absolutely. I was just struck by that, reading the prologue, and then I've been reading along in this book, and then I've also been binge-watching or re-watching the series, and I'm up past season two, and the notion of faith, as you pointed out, it keeps on coming up, Yeah. and people dismiss it, but then it comes back up again, and so it's dismissed, but not really. Uh-huh. And rereading the prologue and thinking about Game of Thrones and, of course, thinking about the moment that we're in, I find myself thinking of a very different 20th century writer who never could dismiss religion, and that is Albert Camus, the French writer. Okay, um, yes, but, but there's, of course. <laughs> there's something almost sort of, uh, and again, Camus ended up rejecting existentialism, but he was an existentialist for a time. There feels like something almost existentialist in these questions about religion and about faith and about good and evil that we see sort of circulating in the book. Well, let me say this, and this is a point that I, I forget whether I make this in volume one or two of Gods of Thrones, but there are legitimate gods in this narrative that we hear and see that influence the plot. And mm-hmm. we meet them in this chapter. They are the others. They function. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, they function not not like a not like a Christian deity who's transcendent. They function much like a, a Norse Jotunheim or something like that. They function as sort of a, a monster. I mean, Greek gods, these gods are a lot like humans. They just have s- super duper powers, right? Right. And we know later on, maybe it's. The end of this book, I forget where it is, but we know that Craster worships these gods. Right. And so these gods uh, receive sacrifices. That's right. They are supernatural. They function in every way that we would expect an ancient god to function if we just started with the Egyptians or Greeks or Romans or something like that. Right. 
Right. That's so interesting, Anthony. I've always loved talking to you because I always learn something. And this is a great lesson for me because I've tended to kind of write off the others and thinking about them kind of as, oh yeah, here we go again with another depiction of the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) And that's one way to think about them, but you're right. It's actually much more complicated than that. And we see that, of course, as the series continues, but it's really a much more useful and productive way to think about them, to think about them as as deities of some kind. Yeah, They're just the, not Judeo-Christian yes. uh, Muslim ones. That's right. So if we think of them as gods in that sense, they almost are avatars for the weather in a way. Mm-hmm. Like they're the gods of ice or the gods of always winter, you know? Yes, yeah. Um, to, to borrow Lewis's idea. But if that is the case, then they're certainly not personal. And throughout the story, they're never personalized. No. They, no. they almost function as this plague or this impending season or some mindless force that really doesn't care what's in its way. It's, it's like winter's coming and that, <laughs> that says it all. That there's, there's yeah. nothing you can do about winter. You can't pray to winter. It's just right. going to happen. right. It's literally a force of nature, right. and there's, there's nothing that can be done with that. Mm. Okay, notable firsts or notable introductions. We learn about the wall. We don't know exactly what it is yet. Right. Um, we meet certain words like sir, spelled S-E-R. Yes. Unmanned and wet-nursed. Um, we meet the word southron. Yes, that's an interesting one, isn't it? So these, I, these are all words that, if you're a first-time reader, you're, these are little gateways, right? These are little, little stained glass windows to let in just a tiny bit of the light that Martin wants to reveal. Yes. And hopefully sort of set the mood. Yeah. I'd love to say just a little something about those words, if that's yes. okay. Um, that's something that's another aspect of what martin is doing that i really really admire there's a lot of futurist speculative fantasy writers do strange things with language to let us know this is a foreign world this is a different world yeah and i think the temptation is often to go very far in that direction i mean tolkien of course created whole new pretend languages But other speculative writers like Anthony Burgess, for example, in A Clockwork Orange, or an even better example is this amazing novel that's very hard going, but that is very brilliant by Russell Hoban called Ridley Walker. Oh, haven't heard of it. Oh, it's incredible. I really, really recommend it. However, it is written in such a strange form of English that it's very hard going to Mm. read it. Uh, At a certain point, if you can hang in for about 100 pages, you get used to it and you're fine. I've recommended it to many people who've said, I just, I can't get through it. What's great about what Martin does is he takes something like Sir. Well, we know what's, you know, Sir, Sir Lancelot. We know what that is. We know what and it then, is just phonetically, right? And he spells it differently. Yeah. But so we're able to still go, Sir, Sir, okay. We're able to make those leaps so it and Southern. It's like, oh, that's Southern. I know what right. that is. They're just enough to kind of make us go, oh, we're in a different world, aren't we? But not have us go, oh, gosh, I don't understand this. Right. Yes. We have a maester that, that also, like, right. a, we have some reference to Maester Amon. All right. 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 
And Maester is spelled M-A-E. So it's not too hard. We can go, oh, yeah, that's Master. Right. Right. And those of us who have the pleasure of having gotten a, a master's degree can go, oh, yeah, he's, he's, got, a, he's got a master's degree <laughs> right. in alchemy or in, he, or in uh, herbology or in astrology, all of these things, actually. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I know what that is. All right. So then uh, something else that Martin does is he'll take something that no longer exists or a mythology that used to be popular, but not very popular anymore. And he'll reframe it. So he mentions dire wolves. Yeah. Now dire wolves, I I didn't know what that was. I mean, I didn't know that these were actual creatures. Oh, were they? I didn't know that. Yeah, you can. Yeah. They're an extinct form of the wolf family. They're tiny. They're not, they're not giant beasts. And I think my guess I've never heard this confirmed, but my guess is that uh, Martin actually got this from a, a Grateful Dead song. <laughs> Could be. Because there's a reference to a, a, a hulking dire wolf in a Grateful Dead song. And I think it may just be called the dire wolf. And it's in a cold setting and whatnot. But wow. that's what a, song, that's... Anthony, do you remember? What song? I think it may just be called the dire wolf. Oh, wow. How cool. Yeah. I mean, if someone just typed in Grateful Dead and dire wolf, they'd come up with the right answer, I'm sure. But that's something else he does. He'll take some sort of extinct creature or extinct mythology and he'll reframe it. He'll put it in service to some other sort of mythology. Huh. Well, and also how great is that, that he's kind of inserted this little, you know, Easter egg so that if you're a deadhead, yes, you can enter this world and go, oh yeah, I know what that is. Awesome. I think exactly that's what, and I think, honestly, I think that Weirwood, I think this is an homage to Bobby Weir. Oh, could be. That's, oh, that's great. That's a whole other layer of kind of fun <laughs> fandom yeah. uh, points of entry <laughs> for readers and viewers. All right, so we're introduced to uh, what I would call casual misogyny. In other yeah. words, when Jared is being derided, when he's said he's unmanned by the, the ideas of ghost stories he's learned at the teat of his wet nurse or something like that. Uh, yeah, my wet nurse said the same thing, Will Royce replied. Never believe anything you hear at a woman's tit. So there you have it. It's like, okay, this is a world where women aren't worth very much. Okay, so this brings me to a particular interest of mine. I don't write a lot on gender studies, but I tinker with it from time to time. Yeah. And I'm interested in looking at the relationship between Waymar Royce and Garrett from a gendered perspective. All right, so let me just give you my little brief take. Yeah, yeah, I want to hear it. In gender studies, there are different ways to describe masculinity. There's the ideal of masculinity, which we could think of as, you know, like like Ned Stark. He's like the picture right. of ma- masculinity. Right. He's wise. He doesn't talk a lot. You know, he's, the, he's the strong, silent type. Yeah, he's heterosexual, very he's he- definitely. He's heterosexual. He has a sword that he likes to play with, right? Yeah. Um, and he, uh, he's strong. He, he's a leader. Or like Cal Drogo, he stands a head taller than everyone else. And right. he's never lost a battle. Um, right. So if you're the ideal of masculinity in the ancient world, you don't lose battles with swords or words. Right. Okay. 
although they aren't big talkers, either of them. Yes. However, if they are going to talk, they're going to win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They talk good, as, as it were. Yeah. That's right. And sometimes they talk with their sword, and, and that, that's how they settle things. Well, that ideal of masculinity is very rare in the real mm. world. Most of us, and I speak as one who's not, maybe not the ideal of masculinity, uh, fall into some level of subordinate masculinity. So the way that we talk about this in gender studies, we talk about hegemonic masculinity and subordinate masculinity. And hegemonic would certainly be Ned Stark. Yeah. Um, and I think that this character, Waymar Royce, is trying to put on that air. Right. You know, he's the Lord. He's got the finest clothing. He's got the bigger horse. And he's courageous. Oh, my. He's just yeah, well, courageous. He's, and, well, he's trying to be. He's, yes. he's really working at it as hard as he can. Yes, that's right. He's, he's the youngest son of a family with too many heirs, uh, right. according to the text. And right. so he really has some kind of insecurity to compensate for. Yeah. On the other hand, if we think of either Will or Garrett not quite living up to Waymar's standard of or ideal of, of masculinity, they're demonstrating some, some sort of lesser masculinity, what we might call subordinate masculinity. And that can be found when someone is feminized by someone else, right? Someone is mm -hmm. called a woman or is said to be unmanned, right? That's yes. Very literally, yes. he's been... Yes. And cowardly sort of fits into the stereotype and here we have this downward trajectory and you can imagine the hierarchy of importance in the society where you've got the ideal of masculinity the hegemonic male and then you've got various levels of subordinate masculinity which of course if you identify as gay or queer that this would put you in a level of subordinate masculinity or if you're too fat to fight or if you're like poor right. Samuel Tarley is a great example of yes, it. yes, um, someone who actually admits to being a coward. This is just unheard of. Yeah, and then of course the lowest rung would be some level of feminine womanhood, right? Because that's the spectrum that we're on here right. for, for men. And so the more that Garrett and Will act like women, the less they meet the standard that. You know, someone like Ned Stark would, or Lord right. Lord Mormont would expect right. from uh, these men. Yeah, it sure is a struggle in the entire series, isn't it? This struggle of masculinities to a kind of assert. Um, I'm I'm making a gesture that you, of course, can't see. So I'm doing kind of a ladder. Speaking of the ladder of chaos, these men are all struggling to be more masculine than the next one. And as I love this discussion of the hegemonic masculinity and subordinate masculinity, because it's making me realize that Sir Waymar is really terrifically foreshadowing all of these other not masculine enough men. I'm thinking about the emphasis at the, in the prologue on his fancy clothes. Yes. And it's like, well, he's, he's, there's some comment that's great. He's like, well, he's been preparing for the night watch like crazy in terms of his wardrobe, <laughs> which is like, is really a girl, you know, that's pretty girly of him. But I'm thinking about, of course, poor Theon, who was very much a Sir Amar type because he keeps on trying to show how brave he is and look what happens. He's 
completely feminized. Right. And Theon is so important for this particular discussion because he's the character who, full, he's like the full range of it, right? He, yeah, he's got the potential he? to be the lord of a great house. Yep, he does. And yet he's never going to be man enough for his father. In fact, his sister is going to be more man than he is. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think that's great. He can never exit subordinate masculinity although bless his heart he really he tries he tries really hard he does he absolutely and and the other person i was thinking about with the fancy clothes and that you know it kind of every inch a king but not really is of course joffrey right yes and he's yeah right because the person who he thinks is his father is the picture of masculinity yeah and how he's the king he yeah. he's the king of the realm and he's just never gonna be that type of king and so he tries to make up for it in other ways yeah indeed and it comes through with you know ways of cruelty and and specific hatred of women i mean talk about a yes. misogynistic character yeah oh he really hates women and he's also a complete coward he's really afraid yes. of everything so he's a very kind of extreme example as a theon of course in a different way of this problem of the near impossibility of becoming that hegemonic man so the only th- other thing that strikes me here is that if you look at these ancient greek texts that talk about the ideal male mm-hmm. There is a common refrain that the ideal male, the, the head of a house, cares for the people under him. And so the, it is, this is very different than sort of a modern view of the detached male. This kind of male in the ancient world is supposed to, you know, make good matches in matrimony. Right. He's supposed to make sure that there's enough food for even the least among the tribe. And so if the least are suffering, then you can question the efficacy of the king or the Lord. Right. And this is something that Ned Stark does really well. He cares for everyone and his children remember him really tenderly. But it's something that a lot of these characters don't quite, a lot of these men don't quite get. Yeah, it's true. They don't. Yeah. Anthony, it makes me wonder, what do you think about this? That Martin you know, is using this very, this again, neo-medieval world. But the power structures that he's talking about aren't medieval exactly. They aren't ancient. They're more, um, they're more modern, you know, more capitalistic in the sense of, you know, these kings and queens, they're sort of captains of industry and the heck with the proletariat. I mean, I think that's kind of Cersei's view, certainly. Mm-hmm. A lot of them. I mean, what do you think? Well, I think that, that it's ultimately I think that Martin, kind of a modern yeah. concept. I think that Martin likes hybrids. Yeah. And so he, what he'll do is, and I think he does this very effectively, he'll give us this ancient world that really borrows from these old narratives and these old histories. But he's also going to give us a character like Tyrion, or he's going to give us an entire class, an entire like scribal class called the maesters yeah who are not into superstition it's almost that they stand in for the modern perspective almost as if this Mm -hmm. world is on the cusp of modernity right and if we can just sort of reach a little bit closer to industry or we can just reach a little bit closer toward the maesters point of view 
then we can put all of these superstitions and, and fairy tales behind us. And there's so many characters that disbelieve dragons that by the time you get to the end of this book, you're shocked that there's actual yes. there's an actual it's like, dragon. oh my God, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I love your point about Martin doing this kind of hybrid writing. I think that that's a really useful way to think about the world. Because as I said what I said, I thought, oh, wait. And listening to you talk about ancient literature, I was thinking, oh, wait, you know, there's all of that in ancient Greek literature, particularly the Iliad. There's all that love of men for men, which can be erotic, but isn't necessarily. And thinking about how the ancient Greek kind of thinking about how only men can really love other men. They can really appreciate it. Yeah, in in spots, in spots, not everywhere, but that's really interesting, the hybrid thing, yeah. Okay, I want to ask you three questions. Okay. And you can interpret these however you want and answer them however you want. Questions are something you've written, something that you've read, and something that you'd like to read. Yeah, I can, I, can, I can answer those. I'm actually, uh, I've just finished a novel manuscript that I just love so much. It's the most fun I've had writing since The Puppet Turners. And it's a novel adventure story about a uh, quite wealthy, almost 14-year-old girl from Beverly Hills who is gender uh, not sure, orientation not sure. And the book really is a way to explore what Judaism is. Who's Jewish? Who decides? Mm. What is Judaism for us Americans in the 21st century, particularly in the forgetting horizon of the Mm. Holocaust and the complex relationship with Israel. So I'm so excited about the project. If anybody is listening to your podcast who is a publisher, talk to me because I really want to get it out into the world. Absolutely. So it sounds like you're playing both with sort of internal identity awareness and collective identity. Correct. Correct. I love it. And it anyway, really excited about that. And then uh, related to this, a book that I'm reading is Ramdas's book, not the famous one, Be Here Now, but his later one called Still Here. Um, I was not a Ramdas fan when he was alive. I, I knew the name, but I didn't know anything about him really until he died. Uh-huh. I read his obituary and went, oh, another Jewish boy. Uh, Richard Alpert is his real name. Another Jewish boy who gets interested in Buddhism Uh and in Hinduism. He wasn't a Jew, boo, but he was close. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I guess I got to read the book, especially since I'm now 65, so I'm older. And it's a book that he started before he had a massive stroke that should have killed him. Oh. And that he finished after that stroke. And it's really... I thought, oh, it's going to be very woo-woo. This is going to be very, you know, uh, spiritual and new agey. And it's very, very no-nonsense and very autobiographical and humorous. I really recommend it. Okay. And the title of that one was? Is Still Here. And the title of the book you're writing, if you care to disclose it. It's Pretend Plumber. Oh, I love it. Because she she gets fed up with her wealthy family who can't do anything and decides, I'm going to become a plumber and fix things. 
Oh, I love it. I can't wait. All right. And then something that you'd like to read. Yeah, the uh, book that I would really like to read is a book that I've actually got sitting on my desk and I just haven't gotten to it yet. And this is Simone de Beauvoir's book on aging called The Coming of Age. Finally, uh, we should talk about the differences between the show and the book in this particular prologue. I noticed just a couple but I, I want to know if, if anything struck you as unique in the writing that you didn't see yeah. on the screen. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm happy to talk about that. And I've been thinking about that. That's been in the back of my mind, actually, as we've been talking through this podcast. Speaking of the others, uh, when we read the prologue, I think I agree. We do get a sense that the others, there's some, the, the White Walkers, in other words, there's something really magical in a profound way about them Mm -hmm. because of the beauty of the descriptions yeah they're not it's not subtle at all right they're they're terrifying Mm -hmm. but they're also beautiful and the weapons that they wield are magical and again not human and more than human in that prologue they're a bunch of them that surround will before he dies the prologue doesn't do any of that so i all right i'm just just a couple lines show i mean doesn't yeah the show doesn't do that just a couple lines here the other slid forward on silent feet in its hand was a long sword like none that will had ever seen no human metal had gone into the forging of that blade it was alive with moonlight translucent a shard of crystal so thin that it seemed almost to vanish when seen edge on, there was a faint blue shimmer to the thing, a ghost light that played around its edges, and somehow Will knew it was sharper than any razor. Yeah. I, that's just so not human, all right? Yeah. And, and it's almost like Martin's hitting you over the head with it. But, right. um, but the image of it just sliding along the snow, I have not seen that depicted. That is not a zombie. You know, we're not right. talking about exactly. This, Exactly. Right? It's exactly. sliding. It's like sliding along the snow, just like you can kind of imagine, like if you've ever been on like a frozen lake or something done so gracefully that you're not imagining these sort of big automatons. Yes. When uh, you were reading out loud, I could just close my eyes and imagine. Yeah. And I could really feel a sense of wonder. I mean, it's frightening, but it's amazing at the same time. And that combination of fear and wonder is, of course, the 18th century, you know, nerds tell us that's the, our encounter with the sublime, the thing that's just, that's frightening, but that's also awe-inspiring. Yeah. And we don't get any of that in the TV show, in my opinion, no. at least not in this, in this early part. Okay. This has been so much fun. I agree. This has just been glorious. Thank you so much, Anthony. I feel like I want to read the rest of the books now and talk with you about this some more. Yeah, let's do that. Let's make that happen. It's a date. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now I talk about my favorite show with someone who doesn't care about it at all. Here's my conversation with comic Steve Osborne. To learn more about his shows in San Francisco and the Bay Area, you can look up steveosborne.com. You can follow him on Instagram at ozfest. That's A-U-S-F-E-S-T. Steve, I got seven questions for you. Okay. These seven questions follow thematically seven major archetypes that we will meet in the show. And those archetypes are father, mother, warrior, maiden, smith, crone, and stranger. So those are the themes. You know how Batman uses like a bat archetype to like scare the villains of Gotham? Yeah. That's kind of what happens. One of these religions in Game of Thrones uses these archetypes to keep the commoners in line. All right. So here are my questions. This is along the fatherhood theme. If you needed life advice from a father figure, you had to ask a TV sitcom dad. Oh. Whom would you choose? Wow. See, I think at a younger age, I might have gone with Howard Cunningham. Oh, all right. Yeah. Something about a a cuddly dad. Yeah. I think now um, maybe it's my own growing liberal sensibilities. I might go with Stephen Keaton. Oh. Yeah. Maybe maybe family ties. Kind of older hippie vibe, right? Right. Older hippie vibe. And he's one of those older hippies who clearly has done all right for himself, like financially, right? So he's navigating he's navigating a capitalist world. He's he's raising a kid with different ideology than him, another one that's a dummy, and another one that we forget exists. And <laughs> and he you know, and he's he's doing it all relatively successfully, right? And you know, he doesn't lose his mind if there's a goat in his house. Yeah, I think that one works. There is, what about if, you? But I will say this. If I needed a hug from one of those two guys. Well, you're going Bosley. I, mean, you're I would go sure. Cunningham every yeah, single time. Yeah, you got Cunningham, right? That guy is huggable as hell. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's just a big, he's a Care Bear. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. All right, motherhood. All right, so this is a little bit convoluted, so you're going to have to follow me here. Okay. Steve. An evil scientist has equipped you with a very fertile womb Mm. and intends to impregnate you with an other-than-human mammal. But you get to choose the mammal. Okay. What furry other would you like to mother? Okay, well, so I have to have a furry mammal? Is that what you're saying? So I can't can't birth a dolphin, is what you're saying? I suppose if you wanted a dolphin, the fin would make me think twice about that yeah but i feel like the the rest of it comes out pretty smooth <laughs> so uh but that's but then i got i mean i'm assuming i have to raise it right or am i just am it doesn't I, have to be furry it could be like a hairless is this cat. just for the i mean you're asking me just for the birthing or am i gonna have to actually raise this both okay um would you like to hear the question uh, one more time because it took it, me a long time to write it yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> An evil scientist has equipped you with a very fertile womb and intends to impregnate you with an other-than-human mammal. But you get to choose the mammal. What furry other would you like to mother? Uh, 
for some reason, like if you like the first thing that popped into my head, and maybe that maybe that's important, was koala bear. I know they're marsupials, but that's still a mammal, right? I mean, it, oh, it, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, oh yeah. I, yeah, I don't know why. Like for when when you said it immediately, it was oh, it's koala. Like so, I I kind of don't want to deny my my maternal instinct. <laughs> so you, all right. I I don't want to deny it either. I, I think it's. I don't even have a reason for it, but I'm just going to trust myself. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's one of those, you know, first thing that pops into your head. I'm like, well, it's koala bear. And then like, and then trying to think, and I'm like, there's. Is a I, koala bear an actual bear or do we just call it a koala bear? I think it's koala. I think it's a marsupial. Yeah. Why do we call it? Maybe that's just an American thing that we like a teddy bear. We call it a koala bear. Yeah. Like they may not even refer to it as a koala bear. They're just a koala. Hmm. Next, this is a warrior-themed question. Mm-hmm. Who is the best non-champion Golden State Warrior? Uh, the best non-champion. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a caveat to make this a little more difficult. Oh yeah, you have to remove the Tim and Chris Burger because they won a gold medal. Oh wow, that's a big deal. So Timmy and Chris are out. Uh, might be Chris Webber. Seriously, I'm offended just that you'd even suggest it. Why? I mean, honestly, if I was going to build Mitch Mitch Richmond or one idea I had was Tyrone Hill because he was kind of great once he wasn't with the Warriors anymore. Spreewell probably is up there, I would think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you need a guy choked out, he's your man, (laughs) which makes him a warrior, by the way, in more ways than one. All right, maiden-themed question, all right? Okay. Steve, you're 16 again, and you've resolved to lose your virginity to a cartoon character. Which animation would you mate? This is a touchy one, because not a ton of... Like, I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to avoid an animal. Oh, why? Why? I mean, it's a cartoon. I don't think bestiality would apply. Okay. Yeah, I think... I think I'll go, I'll keep it human. I think I'll go with uh, Velma from uh, Scooby-Doo. <laughs> if, if, really? It's my, it's my first time. Chances are it's her first time. It seems like, I mean, it seems like she might she might be appreciative. And I'll tell you what, there's something about, about in the throes of passion hearing the word jinkies. <laughs> This is is all very revealing. Thank you very much. All right. This is a Smith-themed question, Steve. And you can write these down if you need to. All right. I want you to rank these seven Smiths by talent. Are you ready? I am ready. Will Smith, the rapper, actor, not the baseball player. Mm -hmm. Emmett Smith. Mm. Ozzy Smith. Maggie Smith. Elliot Smith. Kevin Smith and Michael W. Smith. Wow. And just ranking them just by talent. By, oh, by talent. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to go Ozzy one. Oh, is it the acrobatic moves? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a I sucker. Mean, in for addition it. to being a really fantastic defensive shortstop, I'm a sucker for a shortstop. The floor routine on opening day, that was. Oh, yeah. I'm a little surprised, but but keep going. Maggie Smith. Okay. Don't you feel like she always plays the same old lady? She crushes it. I mean, Ozzy Smith plays the same position. 
Touche. I'm going to go with uh, Michael W. Smith. Oh, wow. You just <laughs> blew my mind. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, I mean, we're talking about a guy who may have seen one note, but he, he had some uh, he had some contemporary uh, pop hits that came out of there. Well, too. here's the thing. I don't know if I would put him on the high on the talent list. What I would say is he overachieved for having a very small amount of talent. I don't know. I think you're just described talent. Mm, interesting. All right. Because of the argument that I would, and I'll put Emmett Smith next, because I would actually use, I would, the reason, yeah, I put him in this almost the same category, right? I mean, Emmett Smith maximized other people's talent to, I think, achieve the greatness that mm-hmm. he's perceived to have. I'm not saying he's not good, but we don't know for sure, because I mean, Arizona Cardinal Emmett Smith is sort of like, you know, you can make a lot of excuses just in terms of age, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to go Will Smith. You know, Will Smith would probably be number one for me. Yeah. I'm really shocked that he's so low on this list. Because, Um, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Musicality probably alone isn't going to put him at the top of the list. But the fact that he then went to comedy, which, as you know, Steve, is not easy. No. And then became an action and dramatic star. I mean, that's a, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, you know, I I, I think I have Will Smith uh, erroneously lower on the list because he was the first one I wrote down, so I kind of was going through everything. But mm-hmm. uh, I might be a prisoner of the moment, too. Uh, Will Smith has sort of kind of, it feels like he's been mailing it in lately. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, uh, I Am Legend's great. Um, if you get to the stage in your career where you can mail it in, that means that there's something you've done right. Okay. All right. So Will Smith, Will Smith, should be, and Kevin Smith is the lowest. <laughs> Not a bit, well, we, you missed Elliot Smith. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't miss Elliot Smith. Uh, I'll put, I'll put Elliot Smith right above Kevin Smith. Not a big fan of Kevin Smith. No, but, I don't understand it. I don't understand the Kevin Smith. <laughs> I just don't get it. I could sit here, we can go back and forth and where we want to put people, but Kevin Smith is not moving up the list. All right, next question. This is crone-themed. If you could choose to get... And by the way, this comes from my daughter. She came up with this one, and uh, I'm really proud of her for this. (laughs) If you could choose to give any superpower to Angela Lansbury, what would it be? Uh, Regeneration. You want her you want her to live forever? I want her to not only live forever, but I want her to be able to go through life doing whatever she wants. Huh. I want her to be able to walk into a war zone without care. I want her to not have to just write about the murders. I want her to be able to just put her like I want she could prevent it just by jumping in front of it kind of thing. I mean imagine huh. imagine uh, Lansbury unleashed. <laughs> this is that is just a wonderful idea for a show. <laughs> Lansbury Unleashed. Wow. <laughs> Last question, stranger themed. Uh, you're going to be murdered violently by a stranger. Mm. But you get to pick the nationality of the stranger. Like what country are they from? I'm murdered violently, so the murder is inevitable and the violence is inevitable. Indeed. Okay. 
I think I think I'll go Bulgarian. Oh, really? Yeah. Is there is there a reason for that? I knew a very angry Bulgarian. And uh and what I feel like is that the violence would be obviously painful, but like I think it would be quicker because of so much pent up <laughs> anger. So it's like I feel like a lot of the violence will happen after I've already died. And that seems better. Okay. Well, I, I've never met a Bulgarian. Uh, pent to, up, dude. They're to, pent up. To my knowledge. And so I really don't have any sort of anything to go on to confirm or deny this. But since you're the, uh, 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 between the two of us, you're the uh, angry Bulgarian expert. <laughs> I will allow it. Okay, Steve, uh, I, you've answered all of these <laughs> very, very, uh, very well. Some of these a little bit shocking. I'm going to look- shocking Will Smith so low or Velma so high. You you sold me on Velma. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your actual relationship to Game of Thrones. Yep, got none. Um, that's what that's what makes it so. No, I would I would beg to differ. Because okay. you're a living, breathing person. Yes, this is a good, so this is all you true. must have watched SNL sketches on it. You must. I uh, would not be eligible probably for a jury if Game of Thrones were uh, to be <laughs> to be accused of something. I would. I wouldn't be able to say I have no knowledge. I would say that I would go. Yeah, that's the show with. Is it where um, it's ancestral dragons? Like that's what I would be able to describe the show. That's actually true. The dragons are ancestral. Wow. So, this is, I know more than I realize. So you know that scene in Empire Strikes Back where Luke and Leia French kiss? Oh, yeah. Okay, oh, imagine yeah. imagine a, an entire a, book series written around that. Yeah, a dirty old man <laughs> decided, you know, that's the, th- that's the part <laughs> that made everyone that's... else feel uncomfortable. I'm gonna, just going to focus on that thing. What if they built the entire plane out of the incest? <laughs> Uh, all right, I think we're done. <laughs> I hope that's like, that's it. <laughs> I think this is pretty much sums it up. <laughs> this is this is a pretty good way to get people on board with, hey, do you want to use this segment as something that you consider comic relief or do you want to call this intermission? If you'd like to follow along with Steve and I as we do our rewatch, next week we will cover... Episode 1, Winter is Coming. Now here's just a brief excerpt of my longer conversation with Dr. Lisa Wolfork. I will be talking with her next week about Chapter 1. This man ended up in this position because of an oath he kept in the prologue. Right? We'll say more about that. So like... You know, in the in the prologue, you know, it's these these three guys out on a ranging mm-hmm. and this and Royce, Sir Waymar Royce, who is on his very first ranging. He's got this fine cloak. He's of a higher social position. He's from a rich family that had yes. a bunch of extra boys they didn't have anything to do with. Mm-hmm. And so rather than deferring to the people that have had more experience than him. He sets off. And wants to do things his way. Mm. And there's a passage in the prologue that said the order had been given 
and honor bound them to obey. And that is basically their death sentence. This 18-year-old kid who has zero experience, but a lot of social power and family wealth tells these two people who have more experience and less wealth and less status that this is what we're going to do. They could have all lived if they had not listened to Waymar Royce. I think that that order, if I'm tracking with you, sort of set his life on a trajectory that he had no control over. Absolutely. And so following that order created a situation whereby he was going to become a deserter. And it's interesting to me that Ned, Ned doesn't just view him as a rule breaker. Ned views him as, well, he's a deserter in the sense that this tells us something about his character. Now that he's a deserter, we know that he will commit other crimes. And this is all Ned's assumption of the character of, you know, someone who's a who's a coward or a deserter or something like that. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that, of course, Ned's going to do that because Ned is the person who is in charge of dispensing justice and maintaining order. His job as warden of the North is to keep the North in line for mm. the crown. Mm. And so he can't have people who are disobeying. And I guess for me, it just shows the 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 violence. It's not just the violence of capital punishment. Because, of course, there's a lot of violence in the series overall. It's the violence that is demanded of a feudal system where hierarchy and authority are matters of life and death. Mm -hmm. So if you know that this is not this is not a system where people get to be represented or tell their side of the story or, um, you know, that really the crown is the one that has all the authority. Yeah, unless um, you have a higher social ex- currency. Absolutely. You can't, you're not going to de- demand a trial. You're just under the, the whims and wishes of who's ever in charge of you. It's capriciousness. And so yeah. when you said that, you know, by obeying, Raymar Royce's order, Garrett has set his life on a track beyond which he has no control. Yeah. Garrett's whole life has always been something that he has beyond his own control. <laughs> right. That's why he's at the wall in the first place. Yes. Um, and the same is true for Waymar Royce, right? He's a rich guy, but he's an extra boy and there's just not room for him mm. to do anything. That's and so he gets to go, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. so this question of who has control over one's life you know, that that everybody is in these pretty tight positions that have been arrayed in advance. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And now for this week's Bird's Eye View, the segment where I monologue for just a little bit too long. As we step into Martin's prologue, what we're doing is, as the reader, we're stepping into Martin's world. This is his first world-building effort. And he does it by introducing three very forgettable characters. Of course, he introduces the big baddie of the entire series, the Others. The highly forgettable crows, 
that lead off the story are Sir Waymar Royce, Will, the POV character, and Garrod. Poor, poor Garrod. They're about eight or nine days uh, range north of the wall, and they're about to meet the big baddies of the series. They don't know that they're going to do this, and that's going to be a problem for them. That's probably why Martin introduces these characters, because somebody's got to get murdered. Somebody has to get got by the others. Our way into their introduction is through these uh, Men of the Night's Watch. The second reason I think that Martin begins with these particular characters is so he can establish the crucial social dynamic in this world, and that is the family status difference between those people with a family name like Royce and pretty much everyone else in the story. And we see this distinction on display with Waymar Royce versus these commoner companions of his, Will and Garrod. Waymar, the youngest son of a wealthy house with too many heirs, has the better horse, the warmer clothing, he's got Castle Forge steel, and he's got this insufferable sense of entitlement. He's propping himself up as this great paragon of courage and assuming that his counterparts are either not smart enough or not courageous enough or not uh, well-studied enough to make decisions for themselves or to offer good advice to their leaders. And if we think of this world as a parallel to the ancient or medieval West... Waymar demonstrates this bizarre and wrong-headed, but all too common connection between aristocracy and military leadership. And this is the idea that the virtues of noble birth make a dude more qualified for high-ranking offices. And of course, I'm using the gender-specific language here consciously. Many ancient cultures were convinced for a variety of reasons that the sons of aristocrats would be better leaders, better strategists, have more courage, and something that they would call moral fortitude. This is, of course, the logical equivalent to night soil. But they believe this. In fact, there's this Greek word, aristocratia, and it's a combination of two words, aristos, meaning excellent, and kratos, meaning power. So in other words, it's, this is a, a power of excellence, or excellent power. Uh, this is where we get the word aristocrat. And in Athens, there's this connection between these young men on the front line and the sons of aristocrats. So boys like Waymar were given command simply by virtue of their social placement. The Athenians really believed that wealthy, young, entitled men made the best military commanders. So Waymar seems to embody this belief. And so he sees himself as smarter than Garrett and Will. And he's, for instance, he's confidently able to read the weather better. And he, he can read the encampment patterns of the enemy better. And he's convinced that he's more courageous than his counterparts. So he's constantly belittling the courage of, of Garrett. In reality, he's more ignorant than he is courageous. But we'll return to his moment of courage in just a minute. Let's talk about the nature of courage, because clearly the Athenians were wrong. I, I, I think <laughs> I, I feel pretty confident about this. I, I'll make my case. Here's what they thought. So 
if you're in this world and you're young and entitled and you're this wealthy boy raised on stories of heroism and told repeatedly that you're courageous, doesn't, in a way, this become your reality? Now, the ancient mindset would be you're courageous and of noble fortitude because of your bloodline. There's something intrinsic in your bloodline that, that makes you more noble. But sociologically speaking, if someone tells you you're courageous over and over and over, couldn't this sort of become your reality? If society expects you to be more virtuous or better equipped for battle simply because of your lineage, you might want to lean into this. Isn't this the sort of perception that, that creates reality? Now, as we'll see with Sam Tarley later in the story, the answer is not necessarily, but almost all of the other entitled brats that we meet in this book end up believing what the Athenians believed, that being that one's bloodline is fundamental to one's talent as a military commander. So Waymar is just the beneficiary of his social placement. There's another key difference between Waymar and his crow companions. And I think that it's probably explained with educational opportunity and wealth. If you grow up not having to plow or seed or pick or package or whatever else you do as a peasant for 10 hours a day, you have more time for martial training. And if you have the best armor and steel, you'll probably have the advantage in battle. And with a little bit of luck, you'll find yourself in a situation where this whole aristocratia myth is reinforced. And eventually, Waymar, because he thinks he knows better, ignores the advice of his brothers and leads them into the encampment of the wildlings. According to Will, who's scouted the place already, the camp is only populated by corpses. So Will freaks out and takes cover under a bush when he sees that the corpses have vanished. Waymar doesn't know he's in a zombie story yet, so he's not impressed by the fact that the dead wildlings are gone. So he sends poor Will up into a tree to get a better look around. Uh, Will wants to hide under a bush, but uh, he has to go up a tree. And that is when Sir Waymar's courage is finally required. If you are a commoner, even if you're older, even if you know better, even if you're wiser, even if you're better naturally at command, when this little lordling... On his first ranging, if he's in command, if he tells you to go into the haunted forest to your own death, you do it. Because that's just the social fabric of the world that Martin's creating. And it was the social fabric of a lot of the medieval and, and ancient period. And in many places in the world, people still have this mentality. And uh, even even in the modern West, some people confuse natural talent with social placement. Another thing about courage. Waymar lacks a bit of crucial intelligence about his enemy. What Waymar doesn't know about the others is that they exist. He doesn't know that they exist. Garrett suspects them, and Will's smart enough to fear the possibility of something haunted, smart enough to heed his feelings. Waymar is simply ignorant, and his ignorance overlaps his courage. He stupidly forces an encounter with the others and ends up dead. Now, sometimes courage is just stupidity. And that's probably the case with Waymar. He's probably just stupid. But sometimes stupidity and courage run parallel. 
All right. So it's I'm going to nuance the point just a little bit here. It is possible to convince yourself through stupidity that you are courageous. Once convinced, you can act in ways that might be construed as courageous. I think Waymar is doing something similar here. He's got no idea what he's about to encounter. And because of his stupidity, he's going to put himself into an episode that requires courage. And then I do think he does exhibit some courage in the end. Waymar finally faces the other. And Will is looking down from the tree. And from his hidden position in the tree, he notices that Waymar dies with courage. In those final moments, uh, observes Will. Waymar is truly a man of the Night's Watch. So he, he's grown up in that moment, the last moments of his life, because he exhibits a certain amount of bravery. So Will, it seems, measures courage differently than Waymar. For Will, courage is earned and uh, inherited. Now, finally, for all of those egalitarian aspirations of the Night's Watch, isn't it highly possible maybe even likely, that Lord Commander Mormont harbors some of these same wrong-headed views on command. Why is he grooming Jon Snow so early for command? Is it because he's bought into this idea that the son of Ned Stark, bastard or not, is going to make a better leader in the long run? Just by virtue of his blood. And you can see why so many men of the Night's Watch just hate Jon from the very beginning. When Mormont is giving rich, young, entitled pricks like Waymar Royce command way too early, you might come to resent rich kids like Jon Snow. So I love this prologue, because it teaches us the first and maybe the most important social dynamic of this world. The civic gap between aristocracy and commoners is the dark heart of several dysfunctional relationships in the story. Think of the fault lines between John and the Free Folk, or between Tyrion and his first wife, Tysha, or the fault line between Danny and Miri Mazdur, or between Roos Bolton and his bastard son, Ramsay Snow, or the, the fault lines between Joffrey and the Butcher's Boy, Micah, or between Bran and Hodor. The power asymmetry in these relationships dooms these relationships from the very beginning. And sometimes the best intentions of our favorite characters are spoiled because of these intrinsic power dynamics. Waymar is just the first of many to misconstrue and misuse his social advantage and end up dead because of it. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Electric Boogaloo. 
you, how do you feel about like the little monster kids do it, do anything for you? Like I think that that's a pretty typical horror trope is to have one of the monsters look like a little kid. I think before I had children, I think it would have freaked me out more. (laughs) The worst thing that that little monster child would do is tell me about the dream it just had. Good Lord, go back to bed. (laughs) 